Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years experience in Brazil and China. This week's guest is quite the big git. Jane Araf is the Baghdad bureau chief for the New York Times. While Jane has only just started in that role, she has a long career covering the Middle East for a couple decades and any number of things before that for publications including NPR, CNN, Reuters, and as a freelancer. But Iraq in particular has been a focal point of Jane's coverage. Jane first moved to Iraq in 1997, and her commitment to covering the region through the dictatorship of Saddam, the U.S. invasion, insurgencies, and even ISIS is truly impressive. She's no war correspondent. She did not go out seeking war, but neither will she turn away when war does strike. Jane is extremely conscientious in her coverage of conflicts and tries to show the impact on local soldiers and civilians caught up in it, not just the Western forces. The humanity and vibrancy of Iraq shine through in her reporting when so much of what we hear is only about war and violence. So yes, we talk about conflicts, but this interview is not all gloom and doom. We also talk about some hopeful stories. And yes, we talk about karaoke. Just a few show notes before we get into the interview. We recorded this on Zoom, and while the audio quality is fine, it might sound a bit different from some other episodes. Second, I bring up the book called In Extremis by Lindsay Hilsom about the famous conflict journalist Marie Colvin. It's a really brilliant book and a deep character study on Colvin and what drove her. I would highly recommend everyone to go out and read it. But it's been a while since I read it, so I'll just say that these were my impressions of the book, even though I don't remember how explicit it was in arguing some of the points I mentioned. Last, I will note that although Jane is now covering Iraq, I happened to speak to her while she was out of the country in Jordan. So now, without further ado, here's my interview with Jane Araf, Baghdad Bureau Chief for The New York Times. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jane. Thank you. To warm up a little bit, if you could just set the scene for us, tell us where you are geographically in the physical space around you, and also a little bit about what you've been up to the past week in terms of work. Okay. I'm in Amman, Jordan, and I flew here on, gosh, the days sort of blend together, but I flew here just a couple of days ago, two days ago, from Erbil, which is in northern Iraq. And I am in my apartment in Jordan, which in the daytime is absolutely lovely because I have a garden outside and somehow I I seem to be feeding like a dozen stray cats. So there are always cats outside my window <laughs> and I have lots of art in my apartment from years of collecting art from places I've been, mostly Iraq. So it's always nice to come back here. It doesn't really feel like home home, but I don't know what home is actually, but anyway, um, it's always nice to come back to Jordan. Jordan's very pleasant, except in the wintertime, it's freezing and oh. nobody insulates their houses and you're just cold all the time. <laughs> and are you just back from, I, I know you had said you were on the road. You were doing a story somewhere, I thought. Yeah, I was in Sinjar in northern Iraq, which is the Yazidi homeland, you know, the Yazidis who are that ancient minority in Iraq that ISIS declared genocide upon. And I was there for the first reburial of victims who were found and identified in a mass grave in a village called Kojo, 
And then I went on to Bartella, which is a Christian town that is kind of a symbol of the way that minorities are disappearing and Christians who feel they're being forced out and kind of the way the whole country is still being shaken up after ISIS seven years ago. Yeah, wow. That sounds like some tough stories to do. Okay, so yeah, basically, we like to explain a little bit about how our guests got to where they are today, kind of give some different roadmaps to how people get to their places in their career. And I like to start way back at the beginning. So if you could start with where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and kind of take us to when you first got interested in journalism. Yeah, my family's Palestinian Canadian, and I grew up in a very small town. Well, it was a small town at the time in Saskatchewan, which is in northwestern Canada. Uh, Saskatchewan is sort of in the middle of the country, but where I grew up was the north and the west of it. So quite rugged in the town. It was a ranching farming town that has the biggest amateur rodeo in North America, I think, hmm. that kind of town. It had a cinema until the cinema burnt down, and then it didn't have any. And <laughs> I don't think it had a bookstore. So small town, small town living. I decided I wanted to be a journalist. Oh, I think when I realized that I was not very good at math, so I was never going to be an astronaut, which is what <laughs> I kind of dreamed of being, because we had this fantastic show about space. It was a... TV series on Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which was the only channel we got when I was growing up, which was probably a good thing because it was very wholesome. <laughs> so when I realized that if I wanted to do a lot of other things I would normally have been interested in, it would have required the ability to do math. And I'm not saying that that's a detriment now, I don't think, because now you could, if, if you weren't good at math, you could get tutoring, you could figure out what was wrong, you could overcome it. That's by no means to say that if you're not good at math, you can't be an astronaut because I think you can overcome it. But at the time, I didn't. And I was curious about everything. And I started a sort of a really bad, really silly kind of school newsletter, kind of a school newspaper, but featured heavily on verbatim interviews and transcriptions of song lyrics. <laughs> this was before the internet. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then I was incredibly lucky because I come from an Arab family, quite conservative. The, the culture is quite conservative. But my father was a school teacher and then a school principal and believed in education, like, like a lot of expatriates, like a lot of Palestinians do. And he told me I could be anything I wanted. I could do anything I wanted. So I decided to study journalism. And I studied journalism in Canada, in Ottawa. A wonderful journalism program. Dropped out halfway through and then worked for a year. Just out of curiosity, how, how did your family end up in Saskatchewan? Um, my father studied in the U.S. And at the time, there was a quota on what they considered Asian immigrants, Palestine being part of Asia. But Canada was kind of wide open and welcoming immigrants. And he got a job there teaching. And I think he probably genuinely did not have any sense of what Saskatchewan would be like or how isolated it was. Because had he known that, I'm not sure he would have <laughs> he would have chosen it. I mean, he did love it in the end, maybe even from the start. 
you know, he'd go ice fishing with his buddies and very Canadian things, but it was <laughs> quite isolated. That's how they ended up there. And we were the only family around. We were the only Arab family that I knew, really, until I was older. We were the only Arab family around for hundreds of miles. So, yeah. So you, you go to university in Canada, and why did you drop out, if you don't mind? I You know, I was... I'm. Hmm, how to describe this? <laughs> I think I don't do well in classrooms, probably. And mm-hmm. I do well at things I really, really like. And I didn't have the discipline. I didn't have the study habits. I didn't really know how to study. So I wasn't doing very well. And I thought, what is the point of this? So I dropped out. And I think I worked as a waitress in Saskatoon for like a week. And then I wasn't good at making change. <laughs> it was uh, it was not like wildly successful. And then I saw an ad for a small town radio TV station in Lloydminster, which is a city on the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. And they were looking for a reporter and a news anchor. So mm-hmm. um, I applied for that job and amazingly got it. And I got on the bus and I went there. And that's what I did for a year. I mean, were you thrown into the deep end? Did you make it up as you went along? Did you feel like you knew what you were doing? How did it go at first? I'm pretty sure I was thrown into the deep end. But at the end of the day, I mean, I I feel like we have the best jobs in the world, right? I mean, journalism is just, it's a privilege to be a journalist. It really is. I have to say that it's not rocket science, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, there, There are some rules don't get things wrong check everything so i guess i was thrown into the deep end in a bit and i feel very bad for the viewers who had to watch me learn tv as i was giving them their evening news but hey that's what you get so it was a wonderful experience until i think there there was one day i don't even know what the story was i think i might have mispronounced some names of hockey players which is like fatal, right? <laughs> and then I realized if I stay here, I will never get better. So I went back to university. Okay. For journalism, I presume? Yeah. Yeah. Was it weird going from working back to the classroom or? No, it was good. You know, I graduated high school when I was 16. I'd skipped a grade and then finished high school early. And I think that was probably too young to be finishing up high school, maybe. So it was good. I I mean, I highly recommend taking detours. And I think that one was a good detour. At the end, I never graduated. I'm a credit and a half from graduating (laughs) decades later. (laughs) And it's really silly. But it was a self-directed research project. And I wasn't very good at self-directed. That's why I kind of love deadlines, actually. So, but it was, it was a great experience. It was You know, I'm not saying everyone has to go to journalism school, but for me, it taught me the right way to do things that in all of my years working, there are only a few editors who have taught me the same things. I mean, in journalism school, if you get a name wrong, you get a failing grade on an assignment. Right. It was very rigorous, which was very, very good. That's good. That's good. So it was, you just had some final project to hand in. And it didn't happen, I'm guessing. Well, and uh, 
it actually didn't happen because I was offered a job. I mean, it didn't happen anyway. <laughs> I don't think it would have happened, but I was actually offered a job with Reuters. Oddly oh, enough. wow. Um, yeah, while I was still working on this self-directed research project. So where you joined with Reuters in what city? I was actually offered this amazing job in Montreal. It was a one-person bureau, and I covered Montreal and the Atlantic provinces, and I got to do things like go and cover Haiti. And oh, wow. so it was fabulous. It, it was a lot of financial reporting, which was fine at first, but soul-destroying towards the end, because I think journalism is best when you actually care about what you're writing about. <laughs> and I found it really hard to care about whether the Royal Bank of Canada was making a higher annual profit. So I should, I know I should, but <laughs> it's difficult to care about. And so, but you got to go to Haiti. What, what were you covering there? I was covering the unrest in Haiti. It was when the military regime had been deposed and just before the Americans sent troops there, it was kind of the first big overseas story I did. Okay. So, I mean, I imagine the bad was uh, reporting on bank earnings and things like that, but going to Haiti must have been amazing. I mean, had you, uh, was that your first big story, would you say? Probably my first big story was a story on the Atlantic coast where there were Sri Lankan refugees who came ashore. And it was a big story only because, I mean, it might have been on a front page for like a day, but it was a big story because it was the first story I'd been to, I think, where the New York Times was there and basically the world press was there. Um, but Haiti was the first big foreign story that I had covered. Gotcha. Uh, so uh, did you stay at Reuters for a while? I did. Yeah, I stayed at Reuters for, gosh, I think like a decade. Oh, wow. I was in Montreal and then New York and then Jordan, where I covered Iraq, and then Washington, D.C. And then I joined Reuters Financial Television because I wanted to learn television. And then I left Reuters for CNN. I guess, were, were there any highlights you want to go over from your time at Reuters? If not, we can get into what drew you to TV, um, but sure. I don't want to go too fast if there's something um, that sticks out from your time at Reuters. Well, lots of things stick out. I was sent for the deployment of American troops for the Bosnia conflict. So I covered a bit of Bosnia and Croatia, and that was fascinating. Um, fascinating in the sense of that was probably first sort of conflict I'd covered. I mean, Haiti, Haiti was quite violent when I went there. There were bodies showing up in the streets and it was unsettled. But Bosnia, of course, was a different ball game. I was incredibly lucky in, in a sense at Reuters, you know, copy editor on the desk. I was a correspondent. I got to cover some things overseas. I worked in New York, which was fantastic. Even the overnight shift. It was a fantastic foundation for everything I would do after that. And when I wanted to learn TV, Reuters Financial TV was the best possible training for live TV. 
I did years of CNN and thousands, literally thousands of live shots, some of them literally under fire, you know, sniper fire, um, explosions around all sorts of things being pinned down by shooting and you didn't know where it was coming from. But sincerely, in a professional sense, nothing was as scary as doing live financial TV. Because, <laughs> because you're actually, people were actually trading on the information that you were reporting and you often didn't have time to, to completely absorb what it was that you were reporting on. So the main thing was to not make any mistakes. So it really honed the ability to be able to say something meaningful and informative while still knowing what it was you didn't know, so you didn't venture into territory where you might make a mistake. So yeah, that part was good. And then it was time to leave. I guess uh, I'm curious because you said earlier that you do your best work when you care about what you're writing about or care about what you're covering. Mm-hmm. And for you, I mean, what what would you say that is? I mean, I, I see you've covered a lot of conflict. Is something about covering that always appealed to you or felt important to you? Or, or what exactly does it for you in terms yeah. of stories? It has always felt important to me to, you know, do that traditional, classic, almost cliched thing of, giving a voice to people who don't have one. So when I first went to Iraq and saw that it was this huge country with an extraordinary population under dictatorship with not much news getting out, I thought that that was something worth doing, actually being there and being one of the few Western correspondents based there, which I was for CNN for some years. And conflict, you know, I really don't like at all the term war correspondent because it implies that you go out seeking war. There's something like particularly heroic about Mm -hmm. it or crazy. In fact, I think most of us have war come to us. We don't go seeking war. You know, in Iraq, Iraq has been through successive wars for, for two decades, more than two decades. And it's something that happens and then you cover it the way you have to. I mean, there have been conflicts I've covered, like Fallujah, where a lot of reporters didn't want to, wouldn't. But I have always felt, particularly in the case of a war that involves big powers, you have to let people know what war actually is. You have to be there on the ground. It's one of those things, like many things, but even more so, that you cannot cover it when you're not there. You just don't know what's happening unless you're there. Right. And I mean, how do you feel about, uh, I guess, your, the personal danger to yourself in these types of situations? What concerns me more is, is the danger to whatever team I'm with. If you're a correspondent, you generally, in broadcasting, certainly, you generally have a team. And I've always made sure that the people I'm with understand the risks and accept the risks because to be completely blunt about it in the the war in Iraq, Fallujah, for instance, there had been journalists hurt. I mean, there's no guarantee that you won't be hurt. At that time, there was a considerable risk, but I felt it was important enough to warrant it. And, you know, there's the saying that 
no story is worth dying for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. No individual story is worth dying for, but I also believe it's true for myself. And I'm speaking very personally. If there aren't things that are worth dying for, then I'm not sure what that says about how I live. And I believe actually that if there are no correspondence, if there's no reporting, if there are no people on the ground, it's really detrimental to the foundations that we have, democracy, however you define that, the ability of people to understand what their governments are doing and make choices based on that. I've always thought it was essential and that it was worth the risk. Sure, yeah, there's no doubt for me that it is essential. I guess after doing it for, you know, a couple decades, and like you said, I mean, there's been conflict in Iraq for at least a couple, yeah, a couple decades on and off. I mean, does that get frustrating that you're reporting these things and seemingly, you know, in the Middle East, conflict just comes again and again? And I guess, does it seem like there's any progress or you're able to actually influence what's going on over there? Yeah, I I don't think I influence. I don't think I or we often have the ability to influence things unless it's conflict that really is so undercovered, so unknown that what you're reporting brings to light things that otherwise wouldn't be known. But most of the time, we don't really have the ability to influence. I mean, at best, you can make people care about an issue they otherwise wouldn't care about. Part of the reason that I stay in Iraq, that I love Iraq, is it's very dynamic. It changes And it isn't the same conflict. It's never the same conflict. I mean, there's some things that stay constant. The participation of Iran, the role of the United States, Turkey, the other neighbors. And there are some internal things that stay constant. But it isn't a conflict in Iraq that keeps repeating itself so much. And one of the things that we always report on, that we always look out for, is are we seeing another conflict in the making? Because if that happens, it's going to probably happen in a different way. Sure. I guess, yeah, to talk about CNN, you joined CNN. How long ago was this? I joined in late 1997. Okay. And I was with them until 2006. Okay. And where were you based for them? What kind of stuff did you cover? And how was how it different from what you were doing for Reuters? Um, I was based in Baghdad. I was actually hired to open the bureau in Baghdad. It was under Saddam Hussein and Saddam, who did not understand the West and didn't understand that governments didn't control media the way they do in his country and most Middle Eastern countries, invited the American networks to open bureaus in Baghdad. And none of them took him up on it, except for Ted Turner, who had started CNN and really sincerely believed that if only people could see that, you know, people around the world were basically similar, there wouldn't be so many wars. So he was very idealistic and he decided he wanted to open a bureau. And I had met some of the CNN people, including the news director, Ethan Jordan, in Baghdad while I was working for Reuters. And they asked me if I wanted to open the Baghdad Bureau. And it was terrifying and thrilling, the thought of that. And so I did. And I was the only Western correspondent based in Baghdad for a few years. 
it was looking back on it kind of a little bit nuts because <laughs> it was technically illegal. It, it broke U.S. sanctions and it was never actually approved by the U.S. Treasury Department, even though we, Eason and, and the other more senior people at CNN lobbied for it. We never got that approval. In fact, we were told quite bluntly at the State Department that it was not in the U.S. interest to have an American news bureau in Baghdad. And then, so in Baghdad, I was treated with suspicion because they assumed I was an American spy. And in the U.S., I was seen in some quarters, particularly Fox News, which had started fairly recently, as kind of the voice of Saddam. And of course, none of those things were true. So it was kind of a balancing act. It was very, very difficult to do credible journalism. Difficult in the sense that it was very difficult to get information. So whenever you were able to verify something, it was a victory. And all the people you wanted to talk to couldn't talk to you or wouldn't talk to you. And the ones who did want to talk to you, you had to ask yourself why they wanted to talk to you. So it was challenging. Right. And so if you were the only foreign journalist... Uh, yeah, Western. Western journalists, sure. I, right. I think there were Russian journalists there at the time. Uh, okay. Would they hold press conferences or would... What was that like? The Iraqis? Yeah, yeah. How would you get information? Um, we were very managed. There would be visiting correspondents occasionally. It was difficult to get a visa then, but there would be visiting American correspondents or British correspondents. And then they would hold press conferences and they would take you to cover things. It was the era of sanctions. Saddam had invaded Kuwait in 1990 and was driven out in 1991. And then for more than a decade later, the U.S. kept sanctions in place. And they were the most sweeping sanctions, I think, ever imposed on a country because they banned almost everything. So all of a sudden, people were incredibly, incredibly poor. So we would be taken to see the effects of sanctions. We would be taken to hospitals where they didn't have any medicine. We would be taken to these terrible events where they would hold up coffins they said had dead babies inside whoa yeah that was that was fairly routine so you could occasionally get interviews with senior officials and then that was sort of a big deal because in a dictatorship pretty much everything that a senior official says has been predetermined and it's kind of important so the reason that I thought it was worth staying there is that in between all of the managed events and the interviews, you could actually get a sense of what was going on living there the way you couldn't otherwise. You could hear, occasionally there would be explosions and you would hear the explosions and they were never reported. Um, we would go out to, to see victims of airstrikes in the no-fly zones. No-fly zone was set up by the U.S., France, and Britain after 91 to protect parts of the country in the south and the north. And you would see the mobile radar that the Iraqis had moved in, that the airstrikes were aimed at, but instead they hit civilians. So you could report around the edges of things and in the spaces in between the control. 
and it wasn't ideal, but it was, you know, we were really one of the very few sources of on the ground information coming out of there at the time. And if I have the years right, uh, that takes us to the U.S. invasion. 2003, 2003 was the U.S. invasion. Right after the the whole weapons of mass destruction thing. So you, you were there for that? I had been kicked out of Baghdad just a few months before for my reporting. Oh, what, what got you kicked out? It was actually a protest. Well, several things. They said my reporting had become hostile, increasingly hostile. So the, the catalyst for getting me kicked out was the first real protest I had ever seen in Iraq. It was when Saddam Hussein opened up the prisons and let prisoners out, and he told families to come and find their sons and their fathers. And we were forced to work out of the information ministry. So all of our phone calls were monitored, any messages were monitored, and a group of relatives came to the information ministry, and they had been around to the prisons, they had been to palace offices, and they hadn't found their sons or their fathers and brothers. And I'm pretty sure they knew they had been killed. They were part of the opposition, part of the Shia opposition, most of them. And they held a very low-key protest, which was the first real protest I'd ever seen. And we covered it. We were told not to cover it. And in fact, the other people who were there, the wire services, for instance, had local staff. And they are under immense, immense pressure. I mean, they don't really have a choice. The worst that would have happened to me really was I might have been detained, but I probably would just be kicked out. But for Iraqis, of course, they, much, much worse would happen to them. So I reported it, of course. I mean, that was not a choice. That was very black and white. It was happening, and we had to report it. And that was the catalyst for my being kicked out. So I came back. I did come back to cover the war. I came back through Iran into northern Iraq, which was controlled by the Kurds. So uh, it's something of a theme, people getting kicked out of countries on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. how, how did they do it? Did they, you know, drive you to an airplane, dramatic movie-like, or was it more low-key than uh, that? Yeah, there were no planes. So that would have been pretty dramatic, except there were no planes. <laughs> I got kicked out twice, actually. The first time I was told I had to leave for 48 hours as an administrative requirement. And I came hmm. back and then... I got kicked out and was not let back in. And when I said, why are you expelling me? They said, don't use the word expel. That's, that's such a nasty word. So I got in, you know, one of the four-wheel drives SUVs that we had with drivers who would drive you to Jordan. It was a 12-hour drive. And the last thing any Iraqi official said to me was, it was one of the information ministry officials who had been based in Paris before he was expelled for activities incompatible with his status. And he looked at me and he said, I admire your shoes. They were French. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And I tried and tried, and I had colleagues try to get me back in, but they did not let me back in. And then the war started. So you were back soon enough because of the war. So... How did you cover the war? You were with the Kurds, and I guess take me through that period. I was given the choice between being embedded with U.S. forces or having my own crew and being unembedded. 
And so I chose to be unembedded and I had a wonderful producer and a fantastic cameraman and an amazing satellite engineer. And we had our own satellite truck. So we all met in Tehran and then drove from Tehran to the Iraqi border with Kurdistan. And we crossed the border into Northern Iraq. At that time, we had been expecting US troops to come from the North, but the United States had made this sort of fatal miscalculation in thinking Turkey would approve it. But Turkey was insulted at the time over a cartoon that portrayed Turkey as a belly dancer <laughs> asking for money. So they, their parliament refused it and the US could never open that Northern front. But we were in the North and we followed the front line as it shifted. There was fighting between the US led coalition and the Iraqi army in all along Northern Iraq. And so we were there kind of huddled against, against hills as there were mortars landing. And we were able to go pretty much everywhere. And it was just a wonderful way to cover what was a truly terrible conflict. We were able to cover the Iraqi side of things as well as the US-led fighting. So it was, it was a wonderful thing. One of the stories that I did, that we did, and I did it with a wonderful Iraqi colleague who I had worked with in Baghdad, but had never got to know because in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, it was dangerous for Iraqis to be friendly with foreigners. But she was from Kirkuk, near Mino Mufti. And I met her again in Kirkuk, and it was the first time we could actually talk. She helped me do the story on, on Iraqi soldiers who had been killed and missing Iraqi soldiers. Because we were hearing a lot about American forces, of course, rightly, and other troops who were killed. And, you know, each one is celebrated and presented as a hero. But all of these Iraqis who didn't sign up to fight were also being killed. And we were running across like burned out vehicles with dismembered bodies. And all these Iraqi families who would never know what happened to their sons. So it was the ability to do that that was wonderful, to both cover the fighting and to cover, to some extent, the Iraqi side of things. Sure, yeah. Wow. I mean, that was a, a fairly short conflict, right? Or at least in my memory, uh, I was pretty young at that point still. But I guess what, what happens after that and what once the American occupation starts, do you stick around? What happens after that? Yeah, no, I, I stuck around. It didn't take that long. It took a few weeks for Baghdad to fall. And then, you know, there was that whole President Bush standing on an aircraft carrier and saying mission accomplished. And of course, it wasn't accomplished because the fighting actually kept on going. What the U.S. had done was not only topple Saddam, but kind of lift the lid on all of these simmering tensions and through a series of decisions, make the country more unstable than it had been in decades. They disbanded the army, for instance. So there were no security forces in large parts of the country. There were a lot of people thrown out of work, a lot of armed people thrown out of work. So an insurgency started, and that's where we began to see battles of U.S.-led coalition against, at the time, Al-Qaeda, for instance, in places like Fallujah and Ramadi and, and against 
Shia militia, the Mahdi army in Najaf. And that went on for about three years. And then it devolved into a civil war and terrible, terrible years. And the, and the fighting didn't stop. It just changed form. Mm-hmm. And during this time, is this when you left CNN for NPR? No, I left CNN in 2005 because I was offered the Edward R. Murrow Fellowship at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And it was, to me, an irresistible opportunity to get out of basically covering explosions and people dying and cities destroyed and to live in the world of ideas for a year. So I did that. And then I came back and I freelanced for a few years. I freelanced for NBC, the American network in Baghdad mostly. And I started working for the Christian Science Monitor newspaper and Al Jazeera English, the TV network. And then I also freelanced for magazines and other newspapers. And then I joined NPR about four years ago based in Cairo, but also covering Iraq. And what drew you to that? I mean, you had done wire service, you had done TV, you did something about radio in particular, make you want to try it out? Yeah, radio is a wonderful medium. I grew up with really good radio. I grew up with Canadian radio, the CBC. You know, I think it's great to do something new, and it's always great to work in different mediums. Because at the end of the day, what you want to do is tell good stories. And you can tell them in any number of ways. And NPR is just a lovely, lovely place to work and a place that respects and values creativity as well as good journalism. So, yeah, it was terrific. You were kind of around the region, it sounds like. How did you approach your work? Was it was Iraq always kind of at the center or wherever you heard there was a good story, you would go after it? Or how, how did you decide what to focus on? I've also been based in Istanbul. I covered Turkey for CNN. I found Turkey difficult because if you don't speak the language, I, I just find it's, it's really difficult being certain that you actually know that you're getting things right, even if getting things right is as simple as knowing that what somebody said is exactly what they said. Mm -hmm. So, and I've always been intensely fascinated by Iraq, by its complexity. And I've also always felt just happier doing stories where I already have a body of knowledge so that you can go deeper. I mean, there is nothing more thrilling, it's true, than ending up in some country you've never been to before and reporting on it. But at the same time, I would far prefer most of the time to actually be reporting on a story that I know. Because you can do much better work that way, I think. And so, yeah, I have been drawn back to Iraq over and over and over. And it's a story that just never fails to fascinate me. And I think it's just everyone has a compelling story. Right. And uh, I forgot to ask, but I presume you speak Arabic? I do. I speak conversational Arabic. I've never really studied it, so I don't speak classical Arabic. And I actually make quite a lot of mistakes when I do speak it. So... 
I understand it really well, but I make a lot of mistakes when I actually speak it. Yeah, it's, it's something I'm working on, but it allows me to know what's going on. And I don't have that feeling I do when I'm working in other languages of thinking that I'm constantly missing something, which doesn't mean that I'm not missing things in Iraq. I mean, sure, I'm missing things all the time, but generally I know what's going on around me. So that's a good thing. Yeah. And I mean, as a journalist, the lucky thing is we don't need to deliver speeches. We just need to interject <laughs> with, uh, you know, a sentence and a question here and there. And the understanding is the more important part. So I guess the one one other thing in terms of timeline is just out of curiosity, how you covered uh, ISIS and if you did a lot of that sort of coverage and how you approached it, because it was a very different sort of conflict. It was a very different sort of conflict. It was kind of the first conflict where, where I actually thought for the first time ever in my career, you know, I don't feel a burning need to actually be there. Although I would have preferred to have been there more than I was. NPR is a very caring company. It's a company that takes its responsibilities towards its staff and the people who it employs on a freelance basis or in any capacity, very, very seriously. So it's quite risk averse. At the time I was based in Cairo, so it wasn't my patch, but when I did start Iraq coverage with NPR, ISIS was still in Mosul. So I was in, I was in Mosul the day that Mosul was declared liberated. I didn't cover a lot of the actual fighting because to do that, you have to be embedded with Iraqi forces which is far riskier than being embedded with Western forces, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, and I have huge respect for people who did it. But what I saw is the remnants of the fighting and the aftermath in places like Mosul and Ramadi and Fallujah and other cities that ISIS had taken over. And what I've been covering since then, since they were driven out of those cities starting in 2017, is Kind of the continued effects of their occupation of more than a third of Iraq and huge parts of Syria. And those effects you still see very clearly on the ground. Out of curiosity, I read the book In Extremis about uh, Marie Colvin. And mm -hmm. one of the things it talks about is how what kind of makes an argument that conflict reporting has changed over time and that the old school version of bearing witness which used to be extremely essential, has fundamentally changed because of social media and because of Iraqis themselves and um, or in Egyptians themselves to post videos, post what they're seeing. And on the other hand, it's also gotten much more dangerous, these conflicts like Syria and ISIS. And there wasn't this kind of base level of respect for journalists as kind of a third party, and it got much more dangerous. I guess I'd just be curious if you see those changes, if you agree that it's fundamentally changed, or if you think it remains the same, or what you've seen over the past couple of decades change in terms of conflict reporting. No, I think it's definitely changed. When I began my career, there was really a genuine belief that if you were media, you wouldn't be targeted, that you were somehow immune. And that, of course, changed very quickly, became apparent very quickly that we were entering a phase early in the 90s, I guess, is when I noticed it, that all bets were off. I mean, 
UN buildings were being blown up, UN officials were targeted, journalists were targeted. It has become more dangerous and much more difficult to cover, mostly because we're not talking about signing up to be with US forces and protected by US forces. We're signing up to go out with like an Iraqi SWAT team or maybe even, you know, one of the Iran-backed militias or or one of a number of shadowy groups that agree to take you. And, and while I think that is incredibly illuminating, it is also very precarious and much more dangerous because it's much more unpredictable. Is it much less likely that you would take one of these uh, assignments or not take it, but make an argument that you should go along with one of these types of ride-alongs, I guess I would say? Yeah, if it were just a ride along, I mean, there there are embeds and there are embeds. There are embeds where, you know, Iraqi forces will create something for you to see and they'll fire off their weapons, you know, and and you might, you know, just get caught in the crossfire because stuff happens. And then there is there are real embeds of the kind that don't really exist anymore, but that did exist in two thousand and three, where. The U.S. military, because it needed journalists to tell a story and partly to tell their story in particular, actually would bring us in and give us access to real information. You know, we would be sitting in on briefings where there was classified information. You would sign a form saying you wouldn't disclose it, but you would have the information so you would actually know what was going on around you. And and there would be actually a reason in your mind for why it was important for you to go out on a raid that night and risk your life because you actually knew what the point was. Again, that doesn't exist anymore. We're, we're now in an era of journalists getting almost no information from the military, U.S. military or, or other Western militaries for the most part. It's easier to get information with Iraqi forces, for instance, or a militia, because it isn't that tightly controlled. And there are factions and divisions, but what was the question again? I'm sorry, I completely rambled way off. <laughs> no, I, I was just wondering if, if you say would be less likely to take some of these assignments, because the, because in this book, for example, I mean, it kind of posits that she shouldn't have even been in Syria, that like the calculations have changed. Foreign journalists shouldn't be going into some of these conflicts at all. So Lynn, that book was a, that was Lindsay Hilsom's book, right? Yeah, that's right. Lindsay Hilsom. So Lindsay was a very good friend of Marie's because she was a very good friend of Marie's. She knew Marie very well. You know, it was a relatively small press corps when we were all around. Marie did a lot of reporting in Baghdad. I think one of the terrible things is to second guess things when somebody has died or been injured. But at the same time, there are things, you know, one might have done differently, like not go live. That was probably uh, one of the key takeaways that if you're going to do live transmission, they're going to be able to find you and target you. Yeah, I, I guess the only other thing I'd say about that is, you know, journalists are human beings, right? And a lot of us are driven and it's it's very difficult to to know how to feel about all of that 
I mean, the terrible thing was it wasn't just Marie who died. There were Syrians who were killed with her. Right. Uh, and hopefully it's, and I think Lindsay has said this, Lindsay hopes that Marie's story is also a cautionary tale for anyone thinking it might be fun to, you know, just take a gander as a journalist in a war zone. Yeah, I guess I'm, uh, I'm asking you to generalize about a thing that I guess is impossible to generalize about. I guess you have to make the calculation every single time. Is it worth it or not, um, based on the level of danger and the importance of the story? Yep. Okay. Um, and then the the only other part of that question was just one argument why it's less essential possibly to have uh, foreign Western journalists there is because of the rise of social media and all this. Yeah, I, I don't think that's it so much because you still have to verify social media. You know, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there these days. I mean, not I think there is obviously a lot of information out there these days. And some of it is deliberate and some of it is well-intentioned. I think where it's less essential to have foreign journalists is because we're seeing a change, a necessary change in which it has to be and it is becoming a case where local journalists are telling their story. In Iraq, for instance, you know, there are Iraqi journalists who say, we shouldn't have any foreigners covering this country. We should do it all ourselves. And I hope, I hope that day comes very soon, but it also has to be local journalists who are able to speak to a Western audience. And, and that's the gap that is, I hope, being bridged. Because really at the end of the day, if you have a journalist who is an ethical journalist, a good journalist, they have proper support, and they understand the parameters of what they're doing, they understand their own biases, the way we have to understand our own biases, they can tell the best possible story about their own country. I mean, much better than we can, you know, no matter how wonderful our reporting is. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've discussed with others before, obviously, there are some uh, not uh, like it used to be, but some additional protections if you're a foreigner and yeah, the worst that can happen to you in some places is you get kicked out versus in locals um, can face much worse consequences. So obviously, you know, a lot of publications have both types of journalists covering covering conflict areas, at least at Reuters, it's that way. Yeah. When I was in Iraq, I would routinely be called up to the information ministry and the complaint would be lodged about my coverage. And and once the director of the ministry said to me, I would not want to see you follow the path of Bazov. Bazov was an Iranian British journalist who was hanged in Iraq for a story he did, or for hanging around a, a nuclear plant, really. So, you know, in, in these countries, in some of these countries, I mean, it's, it's not impossible that you could be disappeared, you could be imprisoned, you could potentially face very, very, very serious consequences. Iran, for instance. But yes, indisputably, there, there's so many more means of pressure that are brought to bear against local journalists. Right. And I'm concerned I might have glossed over some parts of your career, but okay. maybe one way to, to see if uh, there's something we've skipped over that I shouldn't have is we can talk about a story and you can tell me what you would like to highlight. So if there's a story you're proud of, 
if you could just tell us what it was about and tell us kind of the story behind the story, how you came up with it, reported it, any impact it had, just kind of from start to finish, if there's anything that comes to mind over the course of your career. Sure. Yeah, I've done a lot of stories, and I've done a lot of different kinds of stories and a lot of conflict reporting. I think I had never, though, seen anything as... I can't even find the word for it. As extraordinary and as disturbing and soul-destroying as the aftermath of of the battle for Mosul. When the U.S. teamed up with Iraqi forces to drive ISIS out of Mosul, it did so in a city that had been under ISIS control for three years. And there were hundreds of thousands of civilians still in Mosul. And the Iraqis drew up this battle plan in which there was no escape route. In other cities, they had an escape route and ISIS managed to escape to Syria in a a deal to allow civilians to leave and also to allow the city to not be destroyed. But in Mosul, that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. So it was months and months of the battle. And we would go and see civilians who were liberated from certain neighborhoods and hear about the destruction that happened. And then when the city was declared liberated, even though we could still hear the airstrikes, you know, we could see that it wasn't completely liberated. We went into the old part of the city on the west side and it was like nothing I'd ever seen or ever could imagine. It was, it was worse than Fallujah, which was pretty much leveled in 2003. It was worse than any fighting I had ever seen because there were entire city blocks that were leveled and nothing left standing, you know, the rubble of buildings and the trees burned and blackened and and dead bodies everywhere just decomposing in the sun. And it stayed that way for months, including the bodies decomposing. And I would go out, myself and and my Iraqi colleague, Sangar, would go out and For instance, we'd go out with civil defense forces because civilians would come to their office and they'd say, I had to bury my son in the garden. I want to find his body so I can, you know, give him a proper burial. Or they'd say the building collapsed and I know my sister and my mother were trapped and their bodies are still there. And we would go with them and the relatives and the civil defense forces would dig and dig and dig and they'd find the bodies. And so it was that kind of atmosphere. So in the midst of all this, where there was no help from the government, there was no help from aid agencies, there was no help from the UN because it was still, you know, it was still dangerous. There were explosives. I started seeing these young people who were like removing rubble from buildings. And there was a young nurse who was actually removing bodies because the government wouldn't come and pick up the bodies. And she was defusing suicide belts. So we did a podcast. It's, uh, it's for a series called Rough Translation with Gregory Warner. And it was all about this movement, this volunteer movement that basically rescued Mosul when no one else could. And, and they were doing it not with the encouragement of you know, the government for the most part. The government tried to shut them down in a lot of cases. 
but it was this incredible thing where out of the devastation, you actually saw these young people who had spent three years under ISIS, right? I mean, the girls particularly, the women and girls who weren't allowed to leave their homes or couldn't or didn't want to leave their homes under those restrictions. And so many young people, you know, spent those three years either secretly reading because most books were banned or watching films secretly and teaching themselves English. And so it was this extraordinary community that emerged from it. And it emerged with this sense of community spirit that I had never seen before. So we did this, um, what I think is a wonderful podcast called Do It Yourself Mosul. And I'm proud of that, I guess, because for me, it encompassed the tragedy and I guess the redemption in a sense of young people who I see as a new generation who could maybe change the terrible path that Iraq has been on, or at least change their little part of it. Yeah, that's great. That's, uh, you know, some hope in this terrible, terrible destruction that you saw. And Rough Translation's a great podcast. I've, I've listened to quite a few, but I'll have to check that one out. And I'll, I'll post links to that and some other stuff we talked about. Oh, thank you. And I, I guess before we move on to the faster-paced questions, uh, I forgot you had just moved to this new job at the New York Times. I just thought I'd see if there's anything you wanted to say about what you hope to do with them, how that work will be different. Will you try to focus differently, or is it just a, a new outlet for the type of reporting you were already doing? Um, I hope to be doing kind of broader, deeper stories because that's what you can do with a with an organization that you know has a a lot of resources and it has impact and you can have impact doing whatever it is you're doing in any medium. But it's nice to have the kind of impact of an organization like the New York Times. At the same time, it it means that everyone is scrutinizing every single word you're writing pretty much and that is not a bad thing so the stories that i'll be doing are are probably roughly in the same vein but just i hope deeper and broader do you expect to mostly be covering iraq or will it be the entire region well i'm Baghdad bureau chief for the new york times but i will also be doing stories in some other countries but mostly focusing on iraq yeah no that sounds like an amazing opportunity i mean the times has almost become it's halfway newspaper, halfway magazine. They can do it all these days. Um, so that's mm. pretty exciting. Okay. And then uh, I guess we'll move into some of the faster paced questions just to round things out. So next up is the lightning round. Feel free to answer at whatever length, short or long you like. And uh, do you feel ready? I don't know. I'm scared now. <laughs> it's fine. It's <laughs> fine. So the first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at to keep up with things on your beat? And I'm wondering more about the things like, for example, Iraq or Middle East watchers, what the people in the know are reading. And it can be local publications, it can be whatever, but ideally something most people, you know, not the New York Times, for example. But uh, does anything come to mind that is particularly good that you read? There are a couple of things, but I, but I do want to say, and it just occurs to me now, you know, a lot of the information that I get is not from publications, and I'm sure that's the same with a lot of journalists. It's it's from WhatsApp groups. 
Oh, huh. um, because some of those groups include officials, diplomats, people who actually know things <laughs> and things that you won't actually see, but um, wonderful for chasing up ideas, for getting ideas, for getting things confirmed, or even more crucially, knocked down if you're hearing rumors about things. You know, I kind of love any publication that has rigorous reporting and in Iraq, one of them is Iraq oil report, which you would think would be about oil, uh, but it's about increasingly about politics, about oil, about pretty much everything. And, and one of the reasons I'm so fond of it, it's not widely accessible because it's subscription only, but one of the reasons I'm so fond of it is that the guy who founded it, Ben Lando, when we were all hanging out in Baghdad after 2003, came and, you know, had this kind of vague idea. We thought a vague idea. He was going to do an oil report and we thought, oh, okay, fine, whatever. And he's turned it into something quite amazing with stringers across the country and really good reporting. So that's always great to see. And on the Iraqi side, I, you know, there are Iraqi television channels that I keep up on, but a lot of, you know, the indispensable things that you need, the tools you need really these days are social media, I find. Pretty much every government ministry puts official statements on Facebook. And then on Instagram, you can see what people are up to. So I find in a lot of ways that has replaced what I traditionally would have relied on. Not in terms of verified information, of course, but in terms of that sense of you kind of know what's going on, you know what people are talking about, and you know what it is you need to dig down into to see if it's actually true. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? So it can be whatever medium, but vaguely journalistic in nature. Oh, gosh. If I said The New Yorker, that makes me sound frivolous because that makes it sound like I only read the cartoons or something. <laughs> but um, I actually do read the articles. I love good writing. I think the New Yorker has terrific writing and all different kinds of writing. So I do love the New Yorker. But also for fun, um, I read a lot of food magazines, a lot of food online outlets, just because I love people writing about food. You know, I grew up in one of those cultures where food is love, right? Mm -hmm. So it's almost nice to see people writing about food. So that's what I do for fun, probably. And then what's the best journalistic article piece? Again, it can be in whatever medium, text, video, podcast that you have consumed recently. Best journalistic piece. One that I read last week is actually by an AFP correspondent, Agence France Press. And he was in Baghdad and then he moved to back to Beirut. He's Lebanese, Ali Shakir. And he wrote a piece called Baghdad Forever on the Brink. And he wrote it in Arabic, and then it was beautifully translated by his AFP colleague, Maya, into English. And the reason I loved it is that I think it's really hard to get that balance between the personal and the analytical. I mean, so often it feels forced if you're talking about yourself. It's like, why are they going on about themselves? Or it feels too analytical, but it has just the right tone. And because I live and work in Baghdad, I'm sort of predisposed to like stories about Baghdad to begin with. But even if I weren't, I think I would love this because 
he kind of captures it. And I think that is the essence of good writing and a good story where you get to the heart of something. And I particularly loved it because, you know, the wires, as you know, as I know from having worked in them, are not places where you always expect beautiful writing to be able to flourish. And increasingly it does. And I also think the wires are, wire service reporting is really, the importance is not as known as it should be, I think. I think very few people realize how it sets the agenda for a lot of things, wire stories. But this one in particular, Baghdad Forever on the Brink, I thought really captured something real about Baghdad, about living there. And I thought it was just beautiful. That's great. I'll have to check it out. Let's see. Is there any particular subject matter that you geek out about that is not related to your job? So I guess food is one thing you mentioned, but if if there's anything else you think of off the top of your head? So the wonderful thing about my job is I can write about anything I want as long as I make it interesting. So (laughs) I'm fascinated by archaeology, by culture, by religion. I just did a piece, hasn't run yet, so much fun to do. It was about a shrine of an Old Testament prophet in Baghdad. And we went there and the caretaker was telling us about the angels who come at night. They're disguised as birds and they protect the prophet's tomb. And then the stream of people came because the shrine is now surrounded by the tombs of Sufi saints and mystics. And they came to pray for things, for things they needed, for things they wanted. All of these people who had come to pray for something. And it was just absolutely beautiful. You know those moments where you think, I'm so lucky to be here right now. And then you get to write about it. So a lot of the things that I'm interested in anyway, I get to write about. So that's extremely wonderful. And art, I love art and I love meeting artists. Yeah, pretty much everything. I can't think of anything I'm actually not interested in, <laughs> apart from like the annual earnings of sure. of banks. <laughs> sure. I mean, and that sounds like a great piece. Maybe it'll be out by the time uh, this podcast comes out and then I can post it as well. Thanks. Let's see. If you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? I've been rereading recently Martha Gellhorn. Do you know her? Right, yeah. American journalist covered World War II, witnessed the Normandy landing because when they told her she couldn't go, she snuck on a hospital ship and hid in the bathroom, I think, and then helped carry stretchers so she could cover it. I mean, there were a lot of things to dislike about her, certainly in retrospect, but her career was extraordinary because she actually went places where, you know, few women had gone, certainly. And the places where she went, I'm not sure that it was really important that she was a woman. It was important that she was a good journalist, that she she was there to bear witness, which she did. She also sounded like quite a lot of fun. (laughs) She was married to Ernest Hemingway, which seems not to have been a happy part of her life, but she almost said she didn't want to be just a footnote. And... Her travel writing is quite wonderful. It's it's very snarky. It's very kind of real. You can almost picture yourself there. She just sounds like someone you would want to be seated next to at a dinner party. 
but also her career. I mean, she witnessed and wrote about extraordinary things at great personal risk and psychic cost, I'm sure. Right, yeah. In some ways, I mean, I think, you know, Ernest Hemingway looms large, but in terms of talking to journalists, I think her legacy is perhaps weathered a bit better than Ernest Hemingway's these days, especially. <laughs> and Definitely, yes. Uh, and yeah, she did extremely important work and covered, you know, the biggest conflicts of her time and the biggest stories of her time. And she was like reporting like well into her 70s, which is pretty great. Right, yeah. What is one thing most people don't know about you? I am very good at karaoke. <laughs> and by that, I don't mean that I sing like amazingly. By that, I mean I love karaoke and I will do karaoke anywhere with anyone. And I frequently organize karaoke events, which is not so easy even before the pandemic because amazingly, not everybody loves karaoke. I do not understand why. But I think public singing like is one of the most beautiful things. And karaoke in particular you know, a bunch of strangers basically putting themselves out there and willing to make fools of themselves, I just think is lovely. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I imagine you meet interesting people doing karaoke around the Middle East, too. I yes. mean, in China, I did a fair amount myself when I lived there. <laughs> oh, how nice. And what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Oh, gosh, I could write a whole book about that. You know, I think I realized that one makes the choices that one makes for reasons that seemed right at the time. And I guess I would have told myself to have more fun, not be quite so serious. I did make sure that I experienced things, that I went places, that I met people. I think I might have tried to tell myself to be a little more lighthearted, I suppose. Because there are a lot of different ways to get to where you want to get to. I mean, I remember, you know, that first job at Reuters. I remember buying a very expensive blue suit <laughs> because I was doing a lot of corporate reporting. And I don't know, that blue suit, I think, is a metaphor. I mean, part of it was, was the time women wore blue suits. But still, oh my God, that was boring. You know, <laughs> I would have been a little more, might have been a little bit wilder. I would have told myself to be a bit wilder, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you can have fun in whatever job you're doing, even if it's banking earnings. Yep. Let's see. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? can be fiction or nonfiction, but a work that somehow involves journalists. I really liked It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Did you see that? No, that's a Mr. Rogers one. Yeah, it's about Mr. Rogers. And the narrative is that this curmudgeonly reporter who's extremely unhappy in his life comes to do a profile of him. And Mr. Rogers is just so empathetic and smart. He eventually likes breaks through this reporter's defenses. And it's based on a true story because... There was a, a profile in Esquire about him. Why did that strike me? I, well, first it has Tom Hanks in it, who I think is amazing. I love that story because it was an illustration of how when you interview people, it changes you. And meeting just one person, one person who inspires you. 
can change you. Because I think a lot of what we do as reporters, as correspondents, as journalists, particularly when you've done it for a long time, is you kind of, by necessity, if you're, if you're working in conflict zones particularly, you have to kind of put aside emotion so you can do your job. And the one emotion that's left, I find, is being empathetic. That is an essential emotion you cannot put aside. But everything else pretty much goes to the side because otherwise you couldn't do your job. The last question I always ask is, qualifications aside, if you could not be a journalist but could do whatever else you wanted, no qualifications, what job would you do? That is a great question. I would do something with animals. (laughs) That's very vague, isn't it? That makes sense, though. Actually, the wonderful thing about being a journalist is you don't have to decide, right? You can, like, dip into You can go do stories at the zoo, or you can go do stories about solar power, or you can do stories about cities being destroyed, and you don't actually have to decide. You can do a little bit about everything, which I think is why some of us become journalists. So if you have to choose, that's a bit tricky, because then maybe I would say, well, I'd be an archaeologist, but then unless we're kind of factoring magic into this, there would be all those years of study. So no, I know what I would be. I would be Assuming I had the talent, so if I could like add talent to this, if you could just make it appear, I would be like a singer in a cocktail lounge. (laughs) Going back to the karaoke, yeah. That might get old after a week or so, but gosh, that'd be fun for a while. Yeah, that's a good answer. Well, I'll end it there, but I just wanted to say thanks so much for taking all this time to talk to me. You've had an amazing career, and I hope we did some form of justice to it. But uh, thanks again, Jane, for doing this. Thank you so much. And I really hope that, um, you know, journalism is so much tougher than it was when I started. And I really sincerely look at all of these young journalists starting out, and there's so much more qualified than I ever was when I started. And I think it really is tougher. And gosh, I think it's worth struggling for, though, because it is at the end of the day, just an amazing privilege to be able to do journalism. Right. Yeah, I would agree. And yeah, I mean, I've found like the most important thing is to stick with it. And even if a year or two or three out of school, if you if you keep at it, eventually somebody will give you a shot, even if it is getting more and more difficult. Thanks so much. Wonderful idea for a podcast. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jane Araf, Baghdad Bureau Chief for The New York Times. I'll post links to some of Jane's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show was produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. You can find more information on that in the podcast description and also on our show page. 
please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, March 14th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.